Suzanne Nicholson, professor of New Testament at Asbury University, is a breath of fresh air. It is rare to find someone with the mind of an academic, the heart of a shepherd, and the fortitude of a warrior, but Suzanne is all that. She holds degrees from the University of Minnesota, Asbury Theological Seminary. <laughs> We're never gonna get tired of that one. And the University of Durham and Durham, where she earned her Doctor of Philosophy degree in New Testament studies. Before teaching at Asbury University, she served for 16 years on the faculty at Malone University in Ohio. She's a deacon in the United Methodist Church, and she serves on the Wesleyan Covenant Association's Global Council. Suzanne is the author of two books, her latest being Women in the New Testament, an eight-week Bible study published by Seedbed. She's published numerous articles and writes regularly for the online magazine Firebrand, where she serves as assistant lead editor. Friend Suzanne is taking as her text today the great passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. So I invite you to stand as we pronounce together, recite together, this profound confession of our faith in Jesus Christ. I'll read the first verse and then you guys join in. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not quality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well said, everyone, well said. Good afternoon. The church has been described in a variety of ways, but one of my favorite images is that of an orchestra, where you have a variety of different instruments. They're playing different harmonies, and then they all come together and make one beautiful piece of music. Of course, in the last couple of decades in the United Methodist Church, someone has dropped their tuba. <laughs> the clarinets, I was a clarinet player, the clarinets are squeaking. The drums are playing competing different rhythms. And who knows what the trumpets are doing. <laughs> the many gifts and the diverse contexts of the church only create beautiful music when we're playing off of the same sheet music. When we are unified, as the Apostle Paul says, by having the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. This afternoon, we are going to explore the Christ hymn that we just recited in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which offers a pattern for believers to follow. It is a pattern that reveals the paradox of the cross. True power is not found by climbing to the top 
and grabbing power for oneself, but in our willingness to serve others with the heart of Christ. When John Wesley read Paul's description in Philippians of Christ emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, and being obedient to death on a cross, Wesley declared that this is the noblest theme of all the children of God on earth. In fact, Wesley loved this passage so much that Philippians 2.5, let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is Wesley's most quoted scripture passage in all of his sermons. 52 times Wesley calls us to have the mind of Christ. As we turn now to this letter, we should recall that as the Apostle Paul writes it, the Philippian church is experiencing opposition from non-believers in the city as well as dissension from within the church. Does that sound familiar to anyone? If you were a Christian walking through the streets of Philippi in the first century, you would walk past various temples to different gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman religions and also two temples devoted to worship of Caesar and his family as divine. Many of the colonists in the city were from Rome, and many of those were retired military personnel. So when you make the declaration, Jesus Christ is Lord, you are also making the political statement, Caesar is not. That's not a great way to make friends with the Roman colonists. Now, Paul certainly understands this kind of opposition. He is sitting chained to a soldier in Rome when he writes this letter to the Philippians. If anyone has a right to be angry at the sting of injustice, to be upset by the mistreatment that he has experienced, to be frozen by his inability to itinerate where he can flourish, it's the Apostle Paul. But for Paul, the way to deal with those who oppose his gospel is not through griping, or anger, or retribution, or being a troll on Twitter. <laughs> he considers it a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not my knee-jerk reaction when I experience suffering. Yet when Paul writes to these Philippian believers, he is full of joy, and he repeatedly encourages his brothers and sisters in Christ to rejoice as well. Paul instructs the believers who have been wronged to let your gentleness be known to everyone. His overarching concern for this community, one that he repeats 17 times in this short letter, is that they have a proper mindset. That is, that their thinking and the actions that flow from right thinking must reflect their participation in Christ. If you are playing in the symphony, You've got to follow the conductor. When Paul starts chapter two, he reminds his brothers and sisters that they have received encouragement in Christ. They have received the consolation of love from God the Father. They have shared in the Spirit. And not only that, but from one another, they have received compassion and sympathy. And so Paul says, since they have received all of these things, the, the translation might say if, but it really means since since they have received all of these things. Paul urges the Philippians to make his joy complete by having the same mind together as a community. 
Lynn Kohick asks, what does ministry look like if one's goal is joy? It means at least that numbers don't matter. It means that the other is always in view. It means that achievements have to be understood in light of the congregations maturing in Christ. It means that the focus of ministry, the orientation of one's goals, actions, and purposes is to increasingly rejoice. I mean, that, my friends, is a beautiful picture of ministry in the body of Christ. Can we rejoice today at what Christ is accomplishing, accomplishing among us today? Amen. Let us rejoice increasingly. Paul further explains what this unity of mind and purpose must be focused on. Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, valuing others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, this is not only a hard word for today. That's a hard word for today, isn't it? It's hard to do this. But it was especially difficult in Paul's day. Humility was not a virtue in the Greco-Roman honor-shame culture. Your job in that culture was to increase your honor and the honor of your family and your kin. Honor was competitive. If somebody else was gaining honor, well, you were losing honor. So you look out for yourself and for your own. You've got to have a better job than your neighbor. You've got to have a bigger house, throw better dinner parties, get a better appointment to a bigger church, have more likes on social media than the pastor down the street. But Paul's view of the cross-shaped life turns all of these priorities upside down. Instead of a protective, get what's mine attitude, Paul says our attitude must be, how can I help you get what you need even if it comes at my own expense. And this is all based on the model of Christ Jesus. And so in what may well be one of the earliest hymns of the Christian church, whether written by Paul or taken over by Paul so, because it so well suits his purposes for the letter to the Philippians, we hear this magnificent description of Christ's preexistence, incarnation, and glorification. Paul makes it clear at the outset that Jesus was, in very nature, God. He was in the form of God. He was the same essence or the same substance as God. But he did not grasp or cling to his equality with God. The NIV provides an interesting translation, I think a good translation of what this means. Jesus did not consider his divinity as something to be used to his own advantage. He could have used this high status like an influential millionaire or a celebrity actor who expects everyone to, to wait on them hand and foot, doting on their every need, whether practical or moral or not. Recent stories of celebrities paying huge bribes to get their children into top-level universities is the kind of power that grasps after every privilege and advantage it can find. But instead of clinging to his status, Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a slave. Of course, many theological arguments have occurred over this statement. What did Jesus empty himself of? So let's be clear. 
Jesus did not in any way empty himself of his divinity. Jesus was fully divine and then he became fully human in addition to being divine. This involves a change in status. It's not a decrease in divine essence. Even though Jesus rightly deserved to be worshiped 24 seven in heaven, he set aside that right so that he could become human, submitting himself to a frail body that could succumb to hunger and thirst, flogging, nail piercing, and death. But even then, he never stopped being divine. Consider it like this. How many of you on Christmas Day, maybe it's Christmas Eve for your house, you have a great big dinner. You invite all the relatives, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your parents, your children, your grandchildren, and there are so many people in your house that the one dinner table is not large enough for everyone. So what do we have? The adult table and the children's table, right? And so if there are too many adults, you might choose to step down from the adult table because you want to make room for Grandma Martha, right? And you go over and you eat at the children's table. Now, this does not mean that you have suddenly changed your essence from an adult to a child. But it does mean you're probably giving up the adult conversation and you're going to end up talking about Blue's Clues or Paw Patrol. <laughs> Yet in stepping down from the adult table to the kids' table, your whole family learns something about you. You're that relative who is kind and generous and thinks about others before of thinking of themselves, And that's what Christ does. In stooping down to become human, Christ shows us what true divinity is all about. The Lord of the universe demonstrates the depths of his love by becoming one of us, to redeem us, to restore our relationship with him. Or as Charles Wesley so aptly put it, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love indeed. Jesus' obedience all the way to the cross shows us the depths of God's love for us. Rather than turning his back on those who betrayed him with their sins, the Lord of life experienced the cruelest form of torture and death. The Roman punishment was so awful that Roman citizens were almost never crucified. It was reserved as a punishment for people of low status, for criminals and for slaves. And so Jesus, the one in the form of a slave, suffered a slave's death, despite being master of all. And so God the Father responded to Christ's loving obedience by raising Jesus to the highest place, giving him the name that is above all names. That is indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this does not mean that he wasn't Lord prior to his exaltation. He is not receiving a new status. Rather the exaltation means that Jesus is now publicly recognized as Lord. The ones listening in Philippi to Paul's letter being read, who were familiar with the Jewish scriptures, 
they would hear in this section echoes of Isaiah 45, 23. There, the Lord Yahweh declares that to him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. How remarkable that a statement about the Lord Yahweh is now applied to Jesus, a first century Jew who walks the dusty roads of Galilee. My friends, the language of Trinity may not have been fully formed until the later church councils, but the theology is clearly present here in the earliest days of the Christian church. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul makes it exceedingly clear that there is no realm in which Jesus is not Lord. Whether among the spiritual beings in heaven, whether among human beings on earth, or even among the dead under the earth, Jesus Christ is Lord. When Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether willingly or unwillingly. No creature will be able to deny the lordship of Christ and all will be held accountable to that lordship. And yet, this lordship, this authority, this kingly reign all demonstrated a very different way of ruling. Dean Fleming describes it this way, that the one who was humiliated and crucified by Roman power is declared universally sovereign, directly challenges the empire's version of how to achieve world rule. Brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ must not give in to the worldly temptation of ruling by grasping for power, by hanging on to what's theirs, by using budgets and bylaws to place a stranglehold on vibrant ministries, by twisting rules and trust clauses to prop up a dying institution. As we recognize the Spirit's movement in the birth of the global Methodist church, we must take care not to grasp after money or position or influence because Paul's declaration that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess applies to us too. One day we will give an account to our Lord Jesus of how we have treated one another in these difficult times. Have we been grasping and clawing after power and recognition or have we rejoiced in suffering for the sake of Christ Jesus and set our minds upon serving one another? The beautiful Christology of this Christ hymn is not merely a piece of theology. Paul directs the Philippians to this doctrinal description because the Philippians must live out this theology. They are to have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Make no mistake, theology is always practical. We can never divorce head and heart. Too often we talk about seminary education as if it is merely a mental exercise. Too often we talk about ministry only as boots on the ground practical activity. But our practice is shaped by our theology. And our theology is dead if it is not lived out. We need strong orthodox seminaries training strong Christian thinkers in the church to guide our footsteps and make sure that the boots on the ground are not walking in the wrong direction. 
And so Paul writes this theology to urge the Philippians to walk in the direction of humility. We are more than conquerors through the cross of Christ, which brings atonement for our sins. But this redemption, this reconciliation with God that comes through the cross of Christ, it's only the beginning. Christ justifies us so that he might sanctify us. And when we are transformed, we are transformed from power-hungry, self-seeking manipulators into Christ followers who lay down their lives to serve others. If we follow Paul's leading, then we must cultivate an attitude that sees the needs of others as greater than our own. In a global church, the way that we live out this attitude, it's going to look different in different contexts. In Philippi, it meant that believers like Euodia and Sintika needed to stop quarreling with one another. In Corinth, it meant not eating idol meats because it might cause your brother or sister in Christ to stumble. In Thessalonica, it meant a willingness to suffer persecution for the sake of the gospel. In the United States, it means we must share our rich financial resources by building schools in inner city Detroit and digging wells in Kenya, as well as listening, really listening to the Holy Spirit-inspired leadership of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. In Liberia, it means rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying by providing tuition for school children, care for the poor and jobless, and fighting corruption in government. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it means speaking the truth, sharing justice with all, and putting the poor at the center of ministry efforts. In Russia, it means opening new ministries such as soup kitchens and shelters, as well as defending the victims of war despite the dangers of an oppressive authoritarian government. The challenges may be very different across the globe, but the call, the call is the same. We must have the mind of Christ. A global church that has the mind of Christ serves as a witness to the world that true strength does not come through domination. True lordship does not come by stepping on others. Rather, the Lord of the universe is the Lord of love who came to seek and to save the lost, to feed the poor, to heal the wounded, to free the oppressed. When the world looks at us, Will they see Christ? Our job as the church, as Lynn Coick puts it, is to serve as an echo of Christ's work. The echo imitates the original sound, but is always secondary to it. May the other-centered, love-filled symphony of the new Methodist movement echo through the back alleys the tenement halls, the the prisons, the rehab centers, the schools, all of the places of the world, the government corridors, every place in the world, so that all the world will know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Suzanne Nicholson, what a great talk. Thank you. I, I love that image from... I love that passage anyway from Philippians 2. Yeah, for sure. It's, but it's you, my favorite in the so New Testament, good. to be honest. Yes, and clearly it. John Wesley's favorite, too. I did not yeah. know that. I didn't realize that until I started researching more mm-hmm. in depth for this. 52 yeah. times 
Sounds like you could put together like a week of med or a, a year's worth of meditations, yes. one for each week. I like yeah. that idea. <laughs> ding, 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 book idea. <laughs> there it is. Seedbed, are you listening? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. But, you know, I think it was important to kind of explicate that because that is the model, right? Mm -hmm. That is the, the model for us. It is, absolutely. It is, it's a profound model mm -hmm. to think about, you know, Christ being divine and yet willing to undergo. Yes. Not just being human and just the various things that happen as a human being, but right. the depth of, of torture that occurs in crucifixion and that well, he was willing to undergo that for us. Yeah. And one of the things I loved was how you used the analogy of the the adult table and the children's <laughs> table. That table. was just so good. <laughs> I loved you. that. Stepping yeah. down, stepping down. Yeah, and, and so that is a great phrase the mind that was in Christ. Because sometimes when I've preached that or I've taught that, people say, well, I can't have the mind of Christ. I mean, he's fully human, fully divine. But he's fully human. So right. why yeah. can't we have the right. mind of yeah. Christ? Yeah. I mean, he, he did this so that we could imitate him. We're called to imitate him. Why would we be called in scripture to imitate him if it were an impossible task yes. for us? Yeah, and it's not the way that we develop it. It's our, ourselves. I think that's Wesley's point, right? Always is that we have to be shaped that yeah, way it's, by it's, the spirit it's always spirit empowered we do nothing mm -hmm, on our own mm -hmm, yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah um I, other, other things you want to add from this i mean there's just a, a lot in here i took a ton of notes just in the time yeah. that you were yeah. talking <laughs> i thought i only have 18 minutes i loved how you said um this. the the beautiful thing where you went through each of the different cultures of the world and the countries of the world and saying this is what this looks like in this context. I wish I could have added more. Right. Yeah. Oh, it yeah. was just beautiful though. I would have liked to have mentioned the Philippines and some other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I, I emailed some of our brothers and sisters across the world because I thought I don't live in these contexts. I right. don't know what their struggle is right now. Yeah. And so so the ones who, who responded to me, I, you know, did my best to include what I could. I a lot of times that. I had long emails and I just thought I wish I could spend a whole sermon just on this one country because yes. you know their experience is so so different and their challenges and mm -hmm. it's beautiful the the ways that they are being faithful mm -hmm. um you know i just think we have so much to learn yes. from our brothers and sisters uh, well, across and the world even as you went through each one of those with the list i just find myself thinking no we don't struggle with that here in the u.s however i can relate to that struggle mm -hmm. because there are brothers and sisters and so mm -hmm. there is that feeling of yeah, I can relate to them in that. And we are all connected. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the beauty. It's, it's one of the things I appreciate about being here and having our, our, our delegates from, from across the world is, you know, when we, when we take communion together, mm -hmm. we, we are all sharing in the same understanding of who Christ is and yes. what we're doing. I love the fact that I can go anywhere in the world and take the Eucharist, whether it's by intinction or some other method, yes. but we know that we're celebrating the same Christ. Yeah. That is a picture of heaven. We're going to be worshiping together in heaven. We yes. ought to be starting to do that now. Yes, right? right. You said we need strong seminaries to keep the boots on the ground all walking in the same direction. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and as a, and as a professor, yes. What, what do you see kind of the, the future of theological education to be? I know that's a big question, and we only have question. a couple minutes. So, <laughs> so if, 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 you, if, you could, if you could give us a few sentences on that. I think part of the difficulty, there are strains within evangelicalism that are very anti-intellectual. Um, and I think that's problematic 
the problem that we have had with the seminaries that have gone in a very liberal direction is not seminary education, it's bad seminary education. What we need is orthodox teaching because otherwise, if people don't have good teaching, we're going to end up in the same boat that we're in now 20 years down the road. We've got to have people understand who Christ is, understand the rule of faith, the creeds, and be able to explain that to the parishioners. I think we're not maybe doing enough of that with our parishioners. You know, do they understand why it's important that we know God as, as triune? Do they understand the, the incarnation? Um, I mean, these are really key to who we are, and I think maybe we just need to explain this this better to people to understand I mean, it's not, like I said, it's not just an intellectual exercise, but this is something that tells us who God is, how God loves us. Isn't that something we should want more of rather than less of? Thank you so much for joining us and for a great talk here at the Global Gathering. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me.